0: Huddle up, subs. Welcome to Total Mindhead, America's most mindful Criminal Minds podcast based on the CBS original series, Criminal Minds. I'm Mark, and I want to start this episode off with a quotation. This one comes from Season 6, Episode 7 of Criminal Minds. No man chooses evil because it is evil. He only mistakes it for happiness, the good he seeks. It's originally from Mary Shelley, and I know what you're thinking— Let's not have a repeat of the first episode of this podcast. My longtime listeners know that that episode about Ernest Hemingway was definitely one of my worst, but I would argue in a way it's almost, it, 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 it it's one of my best as well. Uh, but basically, we we broke down this quotation from Criminal Minds. It was an Ernest Hemingway quotation from his autobiography, A Movable Feast. It's, all things truly wicked start from innocence. And I basically went on this really long tangent about moral economics. It was this whole weird philosophical explanation that I took this quotation way out of context, and I don't want to do that for this episode, so we're not going to talk actually about the the quotation itself. We're instead going to talk about the the source of it, and that is Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley, up until this episode, I had only ever read one of her works, I didn't read Frankenstein. That's her her most famous the, the novel Frankenstein. Uh what is it? The subtitle, A Modern Prometheus, I think. And I, I know, I've never read that one, but I, I think I might get around to it because I do I do appreciate a lot of Mary Shelley's writing. The the one thing that I read was her short story, The Mortal Immortal. And to be honest, I was never too big of a fan of it. And here's why. The Mortal Immortal ironically for a short story i would i would say that it's kind of a long walk for a short drink of water and what i mean by that is the moral of the story at the end of it is this guy he he unknowingly drank an elixir that gave him immortality and he spends a long time explaining his life he's he he's like 300 years old at the time of of narrating this story to us and the moral of the story at the very end of it is just that immortality was more of a curse than a gift. Kind of a letdown, especially since immortality being bad and not good is kind of one of the oldest stories in the book. But I try not to hold hold that against Mary Shelley too much because it's hard to judge something when it was written in a completely different time from when you're alive. In, in her time, in that context, it might have been really popular and it might have been a really novel take or a really novel idea to do this. I don't, Super believe so, but it totally could have, and I'm not going to hold it against her for that, particularly because there's one thing I really, really like about Mary Shelley's writing, at least in that short story, which is the only thing I've read of hers. She's an incredibly descriptive writer. She writes, re- her vernacular is very original, and I, and I just like her voice a lot. In particular, there is one line in that short story that I forever have freaked out about. Ever since I read it, I, 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 I always try to use it in, in conversation, not with people that I don't know that well because I know they're going to think I'm stupid if I do it, but with people I know, I like to bring this up all the time. There is one line when the narrator of the story, he's telling us about this girl Bertha that he's trying to court, and Bertha won't give him the time of day. She ends up later in the story, she actually, they, they marry each other, but at this time, she's interested in some, somebody else, and he's trying to ask her out, and she says, never, I will never be your companion. And he narrates to us, serpents and adders were in my heart, the word, oh, shoot, well, I just messed it up, that's not very, that's not very exciting. Let me say that again. <laughs> he goes, serpents and adders were in my heart, the moment never half formed on her lips, Serpents and adders, I love that so much, and you y- you might know why. for for my For my regular listeners, I am a big snake person. I own three boa constrictors. And saying serpents and adders, using that as a metaphor for jealousy, for anger, for feeling betrayed, that <laughs> I I love it so much. I think it's just such a a hypey way to to declare your feelings to your audience when you're narrating a story about your immortal life. I. I, I try to say serpents and adders at least like once a week, just e- even if not to other people, I'll try to say it in private or something. Just just when I get angry, I just describe it as serpents and adders being in my heart. I, I really love that. And, that. and that is just one example of her really descriptive and very unique writing style. She shares this style with her mother. So Mary Shelley, she was originally born Mary Wollstonecraft, but she took her husband's name... Her husband being Percy, Shell- Percy Shelley, a, another famous writer. He wrote, uh, I want to say, I believe he wrote Ode to the West Wind. I know he wrote Ozymandias, which is probably his most famous poem, which is quoted a lot. In particular, if you ever have seen CBS's How I Met Your Mother, that moment when Ted is looking up at the Ar- Arcadian and he's about to meet Zoe and he says, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. That's an Ozymandias quotation. And when you read the poem... And you you know the context of that poem and what he's alluding to while looking at the Arcadian. It makes it that much more powerful. But that's not really the point. That's Percy Shelley's work. But Mary Shelley, she was born Mary Wollstonecraft and then took her husband Percy Shelley's last name when she married him. She was named after her mother, also Mary Wollstonecraft. And I would like to talk about Mary Wollstonecraft. That is the, she she's the particular person I want to talk about in this episode. Before researching for this episode, I had never read anything by Mary Wollstonecraft. To be honest, I didn't know too much about her except the kind of the one trait that everybody knows about her, which is that she's she's very famous in circles of feminism because she was one I'm not gonna say the one of the original feminists, because you can really go back way back in history and find examples of original of, of older feminists but she definitely is like a classical feminist and she's cited all the time because she has historical respect. She wh- whether you are, you know, anti-feminist or pro-feminist, it's hard to find too many people who are like a- actively anti-feminist, but really any anybody can respect her work because she she really had a strong voice and she she I'll go into why she was pro- I don't want to I don't want to talk too much about it just yet, but in particular, I want to talk about two of her works, two letters that she wrote. And anybody who is into European European history or feminist history is going to know the ones I'm talking about. The story starts in 1790. Edmund Burke, a very famous author and politician, he wrote a letter to one of his correspondents in France, and the letter was regarding his thoughts on the French Revolution. Edmund Burke at the time he was in the Whig Party in in the British government. The Whig Party was the more radical liberal party, and everybody expected him to have a positive view of the French Revolution because his party was all about the French Revolution. But he actually wrote a pretty—I won't say scathing. It was kind of it was it was cordial. He 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 wrote a a criticism a lot. A lot he had a lot of criticism for the French Revolution. In particular, he touched on a lot of things that I'll go into here in a second, but in particular, his main thesis was, one, the French Revolution probably shouldn't have happened, and two, if the French Revolution were going to happen, they should have done it much, much differently. And that is a... It it was a surprising thesis that he had. Everybody thought he would have been pro-French Revolution. And Mary Wollstonecraft, she wrote... Some responses to him, she, you know, you can probably guess, was against his views on this, and she was pro-French revolution. She was not the only person to respond to his letter. Thomas Paine also did I'll touch on him in a in a little bit uh, in a while, but I did not really care for Thomas Paine's response as much as Mary Wollstonecraft. I think that she did such a better job of articulating herself, but anyway. The letter that Edmund Burke wrote, he touched on a couple of things. Actually, I'm not going to say... He he touched on a lot of things. This letter was super, super long. I didn't read any of these letter, any of these three letters we're going to be talking about in full because they are all so long. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's and Edmund Burke's are all so long, and Thomas Paine's. And so I read, you know, important sections of them. And he goes into a lot of things, but I'll talk. I'll just touch on a few of them that I thought were really relevant to this episode. He he had a few thoughts that were, I, w- I won't say too novel at the time, but one was he really believed in traditional values and he believed that religion and other related traditions were fundamental to having a functioning society. That is not always nowadays a popular thought. Some people still in, I, I'm, you know, I'm in the USA, so I'll only speak from from what I know, but a lot of people in the USA do not like uh, religious themes at all and they would like them to be completely removed from government. I don't have too much of an opinion about that. I I grew up in Catholic school. I've been to 12 years of Catholic school, so I know a lot about religion and I've experienced a lot about religion and my opinion on religion is that there are good Catholics and there are bad Catholics and it doesn't and being Catholic doesn't really have much of an influence. much of an effect on someone's personality, in my opinion, I because I when I meet somebody and if they tell me they're Catholic immediately, that doesn't make me see them as good or bad. It it's just like a thing. Uh, it's totally like out of my mind as a characteristic. But Edmund Burke, he really believes in religious tradition. He he believes that that is paramount in in a functioning society. He also believes in another sort of tradition. I won't say tradition. He believes in a very rigid structure, particularly a rigid class structure. He believes that whether you're a peasant or whether you're an aristocrat, being born into a certain field and being born into a certain lifestyle and not not really having a ton of freedom to move around is it is ironically what real freedom is because it lets you pursue happiness in whatever you you have and it makes everything safer and more functional for everybody. So even if you're born at the bottom, you know, working class, farmer or whatever, you're better off than if we completely removed class mobility and it became like a free-for-all. It's a very British thought. Definitely not a thought that has aged that well. You know, especially in Western civilization, and especially in America where we have the most class mobility out of any country <laughs> in the world, we really value that, and we have kind of disproven his theory because class mobility has done so much to help our country and and help other countries in, in the world too. So that one didn't last very long. That, that That thought did not age very well, but I don't hold it against him too much, kind of for a similar reason I was talking about Mary Shelley before. Uh, or excuse me, um, when I was talking before about that about the mortal immortal Mary Shelley's short story, for the same reason, I don't hold it against him because having a weird opinion outside of your historical context, it can look really strange and really almost you could say like evil to us now, but I don't I don't I choose not to see it that way. For instance, like I've been reading this book lately about zoology, not really zoology, more like evolutionary history. And something I'm learning is how many people in our history of the theory of evolution believed in a concept called phylogeny. It's an evolutionary theory. It's, it's very big and it, and it touches on a lot of things. But the most famous part of it is how it applies to humans. And it's basically the idea that the reason we have different races of people are because we evolved from different animals or, it, you know, that's, that's the theory. And phylogeny, phylog, phylogenic, I guess you would say, phylogenic theory, has, is responsible for a lot of really heinous crimes in history and a lot of bad ideologies. For instance, people believing that certain races were beneath other races and were, and those people were okay to be enslaved. Uh, so, phylogeny has kind of a bad reputation. But when you think about it in context, if you're thinking about a Maybe not like a politician or maybe not some outspoken racist. (laughs) Maybe you're just thinking about it from the perspective of an evolutionary biologist in the 1700s or the 1800s. And they say, I wonder why we have different colored people. Maybe it's because we evolved from different animals. That's not that crazy of an idea. It definitely sounds very bad in a modern context, but it's not that bad. And I know that was a long explanation, but I I feel the same way about, about Edmund Burke's class mobility themes where he he doesn't believe too much in class mobility when he writes about it or at least from the excerpts I, that, that I read it doesn't seem like he's he's coming from a very horrible place it seems like he he honestly believes that it's that it's it, it, it's good for society but you know it's easy to say that considering he was born into the aristocracy and he was a very i imagine wealthy politician and and very respected politician he he talked about one of the thing that that I would like to that I would like to bring up. He brought this up a couple of times in his letter, a lot of times. He really has this thing against people talking about politics and people talking about political theory and people talking about government when they don't know what they're talking about. And the reason I liked it so much is because it's very it's very this is one of those things where you can just say, man, history is repeating itself on this one. And not even nowadays it's repeating itself. I'm sure it's just been happening throughout history, but I'll apply it to our our modern context. He talks a lot about how there are so many people out there who rely on their celebrity for being a writer or for for whatever. People who are who are maybe famous or they are kind of a perceived intellectual person because maybe they have a bunch of fancy degrees from a col- from a esteemed college or something who make these big profound arguments and rile people up to do revolutions and rile people up to make these big radical changes when they really don't know what they're talking about they've never been a politician at the time in 1790 of writing this i want to say i think edmund burke was born in the 1720s or 30s so he was pretty old he was and he he at this point had had a very long political career he was, he was very seasoned in this. And I like hearing this from somebody. I like hearing it, especially from somebody who, who was alive so long ago, because it's kind of a feeling to which we can all relate. We, we, we so often, especially nowadays, I, I hate to sound, you know, so cliche, but because of the internet, you know, we hear, we hear all this noise about people who are just these people who think they know what they're talking about and they make these big claims and they rile a bunch of people up when really they probably aren't that um they probably aren't that qualified to be having opinions on certain things you know with the with the internet right now it's easy for anybody with whatever emotion or whatever cause they want to believe in to find some authority to appeal to and that is a that's a pretty like dangerous thing but the nice thing about the internet too is that if we try to approach things with skepticism we can always we can always find whether something is a credible thing because the internet is so easy to use i'm i'm not trying to brag or anything but like i know how to use the internet really really well for instance i'm planning an episode soon i won't say what the topic is about because i want it to be a surprise but i'm planning an episode and i'm working on my thesis for it or i i should say i'm working on supporting my thesis i and I wanted to quote this one guy, his name is Bobby Azarian, and I was reading one of his articles and and some of his studies, and I wanted to cite him as a source, and I was like, okay, but should I be citing this guy? And I so easily was able to go right to his Twitter account and see that the most recent thing in his feed was a repost of a video of a cat sitting under the blankets watching a YouTube video with the caption, me during quarantine. So then I obviously know at this time Let's take this guy's word with a few grains of salt. That's the plus side of the internet. Man, that was a very long and unnecessary explanation of the internet. But let's go back to Wollstonecraft. So after Burke wrote this big letter, very quickly after, uh, she, I'm surprised in the amount of time it took her to, to, took her to write it because it, it seems like it's, it's something she spent so much more time on. But Mary Wollstonecraft, she made her response. And her first response, or I should say it's her it's her only response to this, but this response became the first in sort of like a two part series. But her response to this was called "A Vindication for the Rights of Man." And she wrote this very, very long letter, uh, kind of trying to debunk his his theories and explain why he's wrong. She had this interesting tone that reminded me so much of her daughter Mary Shelley in her writing where she was kind she was half respectful but she, half respectful but she really had this she just had this like this just perfect passive aggression that um and, and particularly because she's she just like her daughter she has such a unique vernacular and such a unique writing style that it, it's it's very fun to read. Even if you don't want to read the whole thing, like I didn't want to read the whole thing, look up some just, like, like best moments from this letter and just read her vernacular. I remember at one point, something that made me laugh so hard was when she... And it's such a simple thing, too. But she was talking about Edmund Burke's, Edmund Burke's letter and she was saying, reading your venomous dart. Like, this metaphor for his his just, you know, toxic you know, uh, ideas, calling them a venomous dart, his pen. I, I love that so much. I love that kind of stuff. I, I really like Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft's writing styles in in that way. But she touches on a couple of things. One, she talks a lot about gender. We're not going to go into that just yet because I'm saving that for later in the podcast. She talks actually a lot about gender in this letter, but she talks... We'll talk about the gender and stuff in a second here. The main thing I want to talk about in this letter is, on, is actually, ironically, what she didn't talk about. So she talks a lot about societal structure. She talks about how men and women need to rethink how they are structuring their relationships with each other and how and, and, and women need a better place in society. Very feminist. But one thing that she doesn't talk talk about... And it was a thing that Edmund Burke, it was a big part of his his main thesis of his letter, his idea that if the French Revolution were going to happen, it should have happened much, much differently. She didn't really counter him on that. And here's why I love that so much. Throughout history, I'm sure this has been happening, but I've only been alive 21 years, and so I'm only going to talk about what I know, modern context. People will always do this thing we get so caught up in 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 fighting with each other eh, eh, god that sounds so cliche i i hate that i hate it, the way that sounded but it's on the record now it's in my microphone but people get so caught up in fighting each other whether it's about politics or religion or whatever we'll we'll stick with the example of politics for this one here but where to where we we get so heated and we and we start choosing to identify with a party so Let's say, here we'll do an example. Let's take abortion. That's a, a hot issue, always has been. Let's say you are the most educated person there ever was about abortion. You know how many women were, being, were hurting themselves or killing themselves before abortion was made legal. You know how many abortions we have each year. You know where most abortions are happening by state. You know everything there is to know about it. And let's say you're pro-choice. You, you've learned everything and you decided you're pro-choice you then might because you if you let yourself become kind of heated about the subject you get reactionary to people who are pro life and you then see that pro lifers are typically in conservative groups and so you become reactionary and you go to the liberal group everybody is is you know we're we're all guilty of this and so then you start finding things to believe in, in the liberal party. So like, let's say you, you get really heated about then, uh, human effects on climate change. And I'm not, I'm, th- this is going to come across like I'm saying that I'm a climate change liar. I, this is just a, 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 uh, hypothetical scenario. You then might start arguing with people about climate change, even if you don't know anything about climate change. That is when, we, we run into problems. And everybody's guilty of this. We all do it. We all kind of take fat, take sides and, y- you know, we, we all do it. But Mary Wollstonecraft really tactfully doesn't do that. So she was a lot younger at the time of writing this letter than Edmund Burke. And I like to think of it this way. I don't think that she had a better idea than Edmund Burke when he said that the French Revolution was done. Poorly, and that a revolution should take place like the way the British Revolution took place before the French Revolution, which is slow over time with gradual change. I think, I like to think of it this way. She recognized that Edmund Burke had a very long political career and he probably just knew better. She didn't know. She didn't have a better answer. And so she just didn't talk about it. She didn't let like a, an agenda, like an over, like like a, a humongous agenda control what she th- what she knew she knew and what she wanted to talk about. She knows about societal structure. She's she's lived it and she has very definitive and very well articulated opinions and she doesn't go into things she doesn't know about, which makes her the opinions she cares most about land that much stronger. Thomas Paine, like I said before, I didn't like Thomas Paine's letter as much as I liked Mary Wollstonecraft because it came across as more emotional. He really viciously viciously attacked Edmund Burke's um, Ed- Ed- Edmund Burke's views, and when you lose your temper that way, and when you start talking about things you don't know that much about, it really discredits the things you do know what you're talking about. And I and I love so much Mary Wollstonecraft's tact in that. She later in life she wrote. Another letter, and I say that these are kind of in the same, I said it like a two-part series. I don't know if she intended them to be that way, but she did name them things that were very similar. The first letter to Edmund Burke was A Vindication of the Rights of Man, and then this letter that came later was called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, so I think they're correlated. But it was not being addressed to Edmund Burke, and it was not about all the same things. It was actually being written to, I want to say, I think it was a bishop. It it was some member of the clergy, but he had actually passed away at the time, so she wrote it to, like, this late bishop. And she talks far more, you know, as you can probably tell, about gender roles in society. She talks a lot about how men value, men value traits in women that are corrosive to society. She says men want women who continuously doll themselves up, who are just who are always looking pretty and who are weak. And so women try to make themselves look pretty all the time and they try to make themselves weak. They try to make themselves seem a little bit dumber than they are because they just want to attract a man. And, you know, we nowadays look back at that very understandably, or I should say we really understand that sentiment because we've come a long way when it comes to gender roles but I imagine she was hit with a lot of criticism for the time but I'm sure many people liked it as well it makes a lot of sense and she was kind of alone in this sentiment at least as far as people writing about it not too many people were on board with it at the time as you can probably imagine the thing I really love about the second letter and it's and she she did the same thing in a vindication of the rights of man when she was talking about gender she did it in both of them and it's this. It's the same. I, I love it for the same reason that I love that she chose not to talk about um, revolutionary tactics when she didn't know about them. In her letters regarding gender, she doesn't put all the blame on men. She puts a significant amount of blame on women for indulging that male fantasy, for k- perpetuating the stereotype of or perpetuating the value the the things that men value in women. And she, she totally like it's 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 definitely on men. It definitely was on men, but she acknowledges that women are part of the problem too. And I love that for the same reason I love the other thing. She's really making herself credible. She doesn't go after one specific group of people. She has an ob- she has a relatively objective view on the matter and she knows where the problem is it's with everybody we're all kind of part of the problem and I'm not going to just single men out for it even though like she definitely went harder on them because naturally it makes sense that they were more of the problem but talking about how women perpetuate it and talking about how women indulge it makes her point that much more powerful because she she just comes across as so credible I really like Mary Wollstonecraft that, the, I, I really only want to talk about those two letters here. It Maybe we'll do an episode about Mary Shelley in the future. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll read Frankenstein because it's definitely her most famous work. But that's kind of all for this episode. I just wanted to talk about Mary Wollstonecraft in particular. You can email joshua at birdfeet.org if you want to hear some more about Mary Shelley. We'll definitely do another episode. But for now, thank you for listening. Thanks to all my unsubs for listening through this whole episode. This is... Total Mindhead, America's Most Mindful Criminal Minds Podcast, based on the CBS original series Criminal Minds.